Now, this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing our series in the book of Isaiah. It's been a bit of a long go in some ways, a massive amount of material. And so this morning, we're going to be finishing chapter 65 and then moving through chapter 66. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 65, verse 17. Next week, we're going to be, Lord willing, finished with Isaiah and moving on to the book of James. The, the switch will be a little bit jarring uh, in terms of size of material per week, in terms of literary style, also in terms of content. So next week, James, this week, finishing Isaiah. I'm going to read verses 17 through 25 of 65, uh, then pray, then we'll move through that text and 66 together. This is the word of God. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Before we uh, consider this passage uh, together in chapter 66, we're going to pray. uh, But just a a comment first. Uh, Next week uh, is uh, our kickoff Sunday for the year. And we've said that we're going to actually spend some time, just a little bit of time before every different element of the service, uh, talking about why we do these things. You know, why do we read Scripture? Why do we pray? You know, why do we have preaching? Why do we do these things? I mean, we just want to be a little bit self-conscious of why we approach the Lord the way that we do. What's the benefit in these things? Why does God require these particular things of us? Uh, even the announcements, you know, why, why do we do the announcements? It's not, it's not merely to show off, you know, the, the wit and humor of Nancy and Rick and Mary. You know, why, why do we do these things, you know? Uh, and so we're going to be talking about that. And, and think about that uh, this week. Why do we actually do the things that we do? Also, uh, thanks again to everyone who contributed uh, to the pictures of Christ in Isaiah for last week. Uh, Next Saturday, because of uh, the wedding for Chantel, uh, we're going to be clearing off everything on the platform here. And so if any of those material things are yours, if you could pick them up today after the service, that would be very helpful. But thank you so much uh, for those contributions. 
Also, as uh, many of you would know, at this point, uh, Murray Moffat has been moved into hospice. Uh, he moved into hospice just a few days ago. I was able to visit him uh, yesterday, and uh, he is declining very quickly. So we, we don't know exactly when the Lord is going to take him home, but uh, we won't be surprised to hear almost, uh, almost any time uh, that the Lord has called him into his presence. So be in prayer for Murray uh, in these last few days, likely, and also, of course, for Phyllis and for their family. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your many blessings, for being the God that you are, for uh, working with us the way that you do, for bringing yourself honor uh, and glory in this world. And Lord, we thank you that you give us not only salvation through Christ and eternal life, but you also give us uh, the opportunity to, to contribute and to work in significant and meaningful ways in this world. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the gifts and abilities of the people here in this place. Uh, We pray that you will uh, help us as a church family uh, to learn and to grow in in helping every individual uh, use their gifts for your glory. Uh, We pray that you will help us to uh, be a place where uh, people are encouraged to serve you and where grace is given when we all make the mistakes and also where encouragement is given as people learn to walk with you and to use the abilities that you've given them uh, in a variety of ways. We thank you this morning, Lord, in a special way for uh, RCA, and we consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to partner with them, uh, even in small ways. We pray that you will bless them and strengthen them, encourage them. Uh, May they see much fruit for their labor. Lord, we pray that uh, you will encourage the teachers. We pray that Lord, for the students who are excelling, we pray that they will continue to excel and reach new heights. Uh, For those who are struggling, whether it's academically or or socially or emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you will just surround them with your spirit, uh, surround them with your care, help them to grow too. Uh, We pray that every student will experience uh, the thrill of walking with you and knowing you personally. Uh, that every student will really achieve their best and even beyond what they think they can do. Lord, we pray for the Moffats. Uh, we thank you for them. We, we recognize that, that Murray and Phyllis have been uh, an integral part of what has been happening in this church family for decades. And Lord, we thank you for their generosity and the gifts that you have given them. We pray that in these last few days for Murray, that you will give him uh, peace of mind, uh, that you will give him a cessation of pain and suffering. Uh, We pray that you will strengthen and encourage his family. Uh, We think of Phyllis, uh, Lord, just give her all that she needs. May you be her support uh, at this time. Uh, And for their children as well and grandchildren, Lord, may they feel the closeness of their love for one another, but also of your love for them through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. We would ask this morning that you would help us as we come this one last time uh, to consider the thoughts of Isaiah the prophet, who gives us your very word. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, when you reach this spot, of course, in Isaiah 65, if you've been following through the book, if you've been reading it systematically, you know that you're limping just a little bit uh, from the previous chapter and a half. Uh, The material that comes right before this section is very challenging. It's very difficult. Uh, There are blessings for the people of God, but there is also, as we've seen countless times in this book, there is wrath and judgment for those who persist in rebellion against the Lord. For those who persist in harming people, there will be judgment. In other words, uh, injustice will not uh, be victorious forever. And so there is a day that God has set where he will judge the world according to his own holy character. Those who, who simply will not acknowledge that he is right, those who will not acknowledge his goodness, those who persist in hatred and animosity rather than in mercy and compassion and love, they will face the wrath of God. There's no way of reading this book and avoiding those themes. You know, as much as we might want to, in some ways, we might want to sort of curate the message for our own preferences and tastes and palate, but you can't do that. In fact, the book will end, I'll be very honest, the book ends on a note which to me is so jarring that for years and years and years, actually, now I've struggled with why would a book that's this beautiful end with such a a, a grim scene. But this is just the way that the book goes. Isaiah presents a polarization to, to make your options crystal clear. There is absolute enormous blessing for those who follow the Lord. The book rejoices in that, that there is atonement provided for sin. You get this from the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. And so the whole idea there is that no matter what you've done... No matter what your background is, God can purify you. He will purify you if you come to him. Now, how that can possibly work out gets developed throughout the book. So in Isaiah 6, atonement is provided symbolically from the coal and the fire, from the coal taken from the fire of the altar where the sacrifices of atonement are given. And the angel flies over, touches the coal to Isaiah's lips, and Isaiah is told, see, your guilt is atoned for and your sin is taken away. So atonement is provided, but how? Well, the ultimate answer to this comes in Isaiah 53. The servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord being pierced for the trans, not for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of the people of God. So the book establishes that everyone is a sinner, everyone has done things that are wrong, but everyone can be forgiven through an atonement that God will provide. And how does he provide that atonement? Well, ultimately it comes through the suffering servant the one who always does what pleases God, but who dies in the place of those who deserve wrath. Of course, we know this is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So you have these stark polarizations, though. If you will not have your sin taken away by God through Christ's atonement, then you will bear the wrath of God yourself. If, if you will not shelter yourself behind the one who substitutes himself in your place, that is, if you will not look to God to take away your guilt, then you will have to pay the penalty for your guilt yourself. The book is very, very clear about that. And those themes have been sort of driven hard right up until this point in verse 17. Verse 17 gives you, though, uh, absolute refreshment 
This is beautiful news. The problem that we have is that the current world is bearing the curse of God because of our sin. You get this right from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3. That both human beings and, and nature itself are not ideal. Both human beings and nature itself labors under the effects of sin. And so as long as we live in this world, this is one of the, the lessons, of course, with Noah. Uh, one, of the, one of the obvious things with the Noah story is that uh, Noah is a second Adam. Uh, you remember Genesis 1, at the very beginning, uh, all of the, the world is a sort of amorphous, wobbly, watery mass. There's no life possible in it. And so what God begins to do is he begins to separate the waters and dry land begins to appear. You recall this is sort of the opening movement uh, in the creation story. Well, what you have in the Genesis story is you have a flood that covers over the whole earth. You've reset back to Genesis 1. It's exactly the same thing. A globe that's covered in water that is inhospitable to life. This is why so much is, is talked about when the waters are receding and dry land begins to appear again. What God is doing is he's recreating the Genesis 1 story. He's resetting the world. And you might think, well, if we could only have a fresh start, I mean, how many of us have thought that? If we could only have a fresh start, you know, just, just uh, sort of go through and, and revise all the educational curriculum, uh, not, not the RCA one, but the other one, you know, go through and revise all of the educational curriculum, reestablish a new type of economic order, put together a new political system. I mean, this is what Plato is trying to do in the Republic, of course, and he basically says this is, impo- this is impossible unless we just start out with this brand new lie and convince the whole world, you know, they have a totally different origin, then maybe we can start reformulating a society which will function well. We think if we could just set this slate clean, if everyone got a fresh start, we could create utopia. That's already been tried, Genesis 6 through 9. God gives the human race a fresh start. He resets to Genesis 1 before Genesis 3, before the fall into sin. The problem, of course is that sin is internal to the human heart. So sin is the unwelcome passenger on the ark, which is also preserved. And so when Noah comes off the ark, they offer sacrifices, sure, but he also plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk and lies in his nakedness, and his sons see this and all the rest. You you recall the story. Adam sins in his nakedness by eating fruit. Noah sins in his nakedness by drinking fruit. The parallel is obvious. The second Adam in the new world has failed just like the first Adam did. In other words, no matter how many times we wipe the slate clean, the problem is inside of us, and sin is going to continue. Unless you finally have not just the slate wiped clean, you finally have a new slate. And that's what God gives you in verse 17. See, I will create a new heaven and new earth. I'm giving you something that's actually categorically brand new. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In other words, this is going to be so good that you're not going to remember even the glories of the past. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people 
a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. The word actually that God uses for create is the Hebrew word bara, which is the same word he uses in Genesis 1 when he creates things brand new. And so you have this clear verbal connection that God is He's creating in the sense of Genesis 1. Something brand new is being brought into existence. And it's so good that you don't remember either the glory or the pain of the past. The future experience is so overwhelmingly positive that whatever you went through previously seems almost to be insignificant. You don't think about it anymore. It doesn't come to mind because you're too busy rejoicing in what God has done. To see, rejoice, uh, be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. He creates his people to be a joy. And so it will actually be in the new heavens and new earth, in this current state, the problem that you get with Noah very clearly, the problem is in the human heart. Here, we'll be able to rejoice with everyone. Implied there is that God has done a work inside of us, not just around us. You see, no matter how often you change externals, it doesn't change who you are. But if God changes the external world and our hearts as well, then you really, have a, then you really are in paradise, where you really are a joy, where people are considered a joy. It is an amazing thing. You know, when, when you get to heaven... The new heavens and new earth, to be more accurate. When you get there, you'll actually like everyone who's there too. And, and, and this, of course, is something which, which here at Crestwick, we have no trouble imagining that because everyone here gets along so well all of the time. You know, but apparently there are some churches where that's not the case. You almost can't imagine what it would be like to not get along perfectly with everyone all of the time. But in the new heavens and new earth, you will. The people are created a joy and you'll feel that. You'll rejoice over the people who are there. But more importantly, God rejoices over them too. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this language in Isaiah. You also get it in a very special way in in Zephaniah where God sings love songs to his people. One of the most amazing things is that God is doing a work in us He saves us because he loves us. And then by the work of his Holy Spirit, conforming us into the image of Christ, he actually makes us people over whom he will delight. The finished product of you, as the potter forms you into the image he wants you to be in, the finished version of you is one that the perfect God whose standards are infinite and flawless. The one who knows you absolutely through and through, who knows everything about you, who knows you better than you know yourself. He looks at you, not the mask that you wear, you know, not all the defense mechanisms that you have to, to shift responsibility onto other people. He looks into the very heart of the person that you are, and he rejoices in you. That's what he's making you. He's making you into a spiritual, moral aesthetic. He's making you into a work of art. And he is going to rejoice in you, and others are going to rejoice in you too. There will not be any weeping or crying. Now, here's where, verses 20 through 24, 
we get into a passage which is feverishly contested in terms of eschatological systems. And so, unfortunately, Marcia took my time and I can't get into those debates now. Uh, Just to say this, I know you know what these verses mean. You don't need to send me angry emails this week if I don't have exactly your particular view, because we're rejoicing in one another. This can be taken in a couple different ways, and is, not just today by good Christian people, uh, but also throughout history. Uh, The reality is, you're dealing with new heaven and new earth language, but it doesn't seem like you have everything just perfect yet, because although things seem a lot better, you still have death. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. Now, this seems to be a state that's better than what we have now, but isn't yet perfect. And so a lot of people say, well, this is an earthly millennium, drawing on Revelation 20, you know, the thousand years. This is when, you know, Christ rules physically on earth for that millennial period where it's a golden age, and then there's Armageddon after that thousand-year period, and then the new heavens and new earth comes in then. Maybe. Uh, You certainly don't have death in the eternal state. Neither do you have reproduction. However, Isaiah starts this text by talking about the new heavens and new earth. So what do you do with that? Well, you can start it on your own. Uh, The reality is that a lot of times for the prophets, as they look into the future, it's somewhat like when you go outside and you see the stars, to us, to the naked eye, you go out and it looks like the stars are all the same distance away from us. But there are enormous, unimaginable differences in terms of where those stars actually are. Some of them are, are, are you know, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of light years farther than other ones. And so, you know, we, we, we go, we look at these stars, and, and they look like they're the exact same distance to us, but there are massive spatial differences in between. Often when the prophets look into the future, they see everything sort of in one horizon, one sky, even though events that they see may have tremendous differences in between. Now, it seems to me that what Isaiah might be doing is Isaiah might be sort of seeing this fused horizon. Later on, as God begins to explicate a little bit more about how these things will work out, you begin to see that there are differences, there are breaks, there are chronological sequences that are in place. But he just sort of gives it to you all as he sees it almost phenomenologically, the way that we would see stars in the sky. So, the one thing that's incontrovertible, though, is that when Revelation picks up this language, it is talking about the eternal state. When God creates the new heaven and new earth, it's the place where every one of his people will live forever. So, is it an earthly millennium? Are there elements of that here? Quite possibly so. Are there elements that go beyond that? Almost undoubtedly, that's the way that the language is picked up, at least by revelation, when it comes to new heavens and new earth. But are there fused elements? I think that that might actually be a way of helping sort out the text. Now, 
Verse 25 is one that you're undoubtedly familiar with. This is just a picture of consummate peace. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, this is a sign. You've seen this language earlier in Isaiah also, of course. This is a sign of sort of inveterate enemies by nature now living in harmony. In other words, there's been a radical change. Even the wolf and the lamb are friends. Uh, The lion isn't a carnivore anymore. The lion eats straw like an ox. Now, this is all, in a sense, obviously symbolic, clearly, because of the next line. And dust will be the serpent's food. And dust will be the serpent's food. What you have in Scripture is very often the image of eating dust. We might talk about this today, like sort of you know, licking the dust off someone's you know, boots or whatnot, uh, being, being cast down into the dust. Eating dust in the culture was a metaphor for abject humiliation and defeat. So this is not talking about you know, the, the, the diet of snakes in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, they're, getting a little, they're getting a little bit ripped off, actually, if that's the case. You know, dust will be the serpent's food. In other words, the serpent will eat dust in the new heavens and new earth. Well, why is that the case? What you're being told in pictorial form is that that serpent back from Genesis 3 is absolutely destroyed and defeated in the new heaven and new earth. The great enemy, the serpent, far from having freedom and liberty, eats dust in the new heaven and new earth. But dust will be the serpent's food. He is defeated. That's why they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. The serpent has been defeated forever. And that is good news. Now, with that presentation then of, look, this is what you have. You know, there is a time of blessing in the future beyond anything you can imagine. You know, there is a time of blessing coming beyond anything you can fathom. God is not only going to give you long life. He's going to create a brand new environment for you to live in. He's going to bless you beyond your wildest expectations. There is going to be consummate peace. There is going to be sort of shalom, not only internally for you, not only amongst the people that you have joy and not only amongst the people that God rejoices in, but even nature in the animal kingdom itself is transformed, and Satan, the serpent, is defeated forever, and nothing harms or destroys on my holy mountain. That's the future promise of what God is doing. It'll be so great, you don't even remember what came before. The accent on the serpent eating dust, though, just sounds that note again that there are two different ways of living in the new heaven and new earth. There will either be rejoicing and glory and life, or there is abject defeat and humiliation and suffering. Sometimes you wonder, well, why doesn't Isaiah just end here? Why doesn't he end with the new heavens and new earth? Why one more chapter? Well, chapter 66 is going to drive home one last time that there are two responses to the vision of God. 
There are two responses to the call of God. There are only two camps. There's no tertium quid. There's no third position. There's no neutrality. You either come into the presence and purposes of God through the atoning substitutionary sacrifice and receive blessings eternally, or you will suffer God's wrath and judgment. Those are the two camps, the two dividing lines. Two paths, two very different ends. This is what the Lord says, chapter 66. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. Those are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. You'll recall a very, a very famous text in Isaiah that we looked at earlier which is that the Lord dwells in sort of a high and holy dwelling, that is, he is transcended and glorious, but also where? With whom does he dwell? With those who are humble and broken and contrite of heart. And so you get this sort of this, this, this juxtaposition where God is, is in one sense high and transcended and holy and glorious, but also imminent and intimate with his people, with those who are humble. He lives with them, even though the highest heavens cannot contain him. And that's what you're being told here. Heaven's my throne. Earth is my footstool. You know, wh- where are you going to build a temple for me? You know, wh- where are you going to build a house for me? Even the universe is too small for me to dwell in. So in one sense, what God is doing is saying, I can't really live in a temple, but I will live with the humble. I will live with those who are humble and contrite in spirit, those who tremble at my word. I will make my home with them. No building, not even the universe itself can contain me, but I will be pleased to live with you where you are if you are humble and tremble at my word. But, because one of the great dangers in the book of Isaiah and one of the great dangers for us today is that religion is so very often the last line of defense against God. And so people will be very religious, not because they want to know God, but because they actually don't want to know God. It's the last way of keeping God safely at arm's length. So we give him a little bit of time and a little bit of sacrifice and a little bit of money and a little bit of thought, but just enough to keep him at bay instead of opening up our lives to him in a radical way. So those who, who are religious, but who aren't humble, contrite, and trembling at God's word are like this. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. You, you can't have a, a starker image than that. In other words, the person whose heart is not right with God, but who comes into his presence to offer a religious sacrifice, in God's view, is no better than a murderer. That's the moral equivalent in God's sight. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. A dog is an unclean animal. The idea here is that you can offer the most perfect lamb on the altar that you want, but if your heart isn't right with God, it's like you're offering him something unclean which he's forbidden. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. Again, an unclean animal. Whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. Do you hear that? What God is doing is God is saying, if your heart isn't right before me, all of these religious things, all these things that we do, to me it's it's like murder and idolatry. I don't don't want anything to do with that. 
It's unclean to me. In other words, God is saying, I don't care about your rituals. I care about your heart. Like, Like what's going on inside of you? It's not about going through the motions. It's not about a formula. It's not about, you know, you just put in, you know, X number of dollars and God gives you X number of blessings or X number of hours of prayer gets you a certain type of life. It's not like that. You know, religion can be something that God hates. They have chosen their own ways. They delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. In other words, God is the one interesting enough. God is calling them and they won't respond. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. And so in Isaiah's day with the covenant community, what what God is saying here is, look, those who actually genuinely care about me are hated and ridiculed by everyone else. And they're saying, oh, let's see God do something. Let, let Let him help you. Then we'll see your joy and we'll rejoice. You know, they're mocking them. And God says, but listen, Don't forget, there is a day of judgment coming where I will repay my enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who's ever heard of such things? Who's ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? In other words, what God is saying is, listen, there's a day of judgment coming. There's also a day of deliverance. There's a day of life, and it's going to happen in a moment. Both of these things are going to happen in an instant. No sooner, metaphorically, no sooner does does Zion go into labor than the child is in their arms. That's what God is saying. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to do it quickly so that you will rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her. All you who mourn over her, for you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. God is going to bless his people so that they will rejoice. Why? For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. This is a maternal image. It's not the first time we've seen this in Isaiah, but God casts himself like a mother with a newborn child, nursing that child and protecting that child and comforting that child. God says, Jerusalem, that's what I'm going to do for you. For all of you who love me, I will take care of you in ways that you cannot fathom. And when you see this, verse 14, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Again, those two paths, those two ways, you either flourish or you receive the fury of God. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment and on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. Now at this point, 
you feel you've drifted a reasonable way away from verses 17 through 25 of chapter 65. But what the prophet is doing, what God is saying through the prophet again, in the starkest, clearest, most polarizing language possible, is there are two outcomes to your relationship with God. And every time the note of judgment sounds, it is implicitly calling you, leave those ways. Come to God. Come to the glory. Come to forgiveness. Come to love. Come to mercy. Come to humanity. Come to a new heaven and new earth. Do not end up under the judgment of God. Why? Isaiah 53, the judgment of God has already fallen on a substitute. Why reject that? Why bear it yourself? For those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send them some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish and to Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. Before this day, before this great dividing day, the glory of God is proclaimed to all the nations so, the, so, that, there is, so that no one, has to bear the wrath of God. See, even here is the, is the unlimited mercy and compassion and kindness and love of God. He's saying, I will show you my glory. I will reveal myself to you, and, and, and if, you, if you want to come to me, then I will give you eternal life forever. And if you don't, then I won't force you but you will bear the consequences of either decision. But I'll I'll set it out for you. I'll tell you both ways. I'll tell you both ends. And I'll show you who I am. And if you want to know me, I want to know you too. I provided a way for your sins to be paid for. And I'm creating a new heaven, new earth, and I'm willing to work in you to make you a work of art that I rejoice in. But if in the end you reject me and don't want that, then there's no other choice. There isn't a third position. There's only two. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. Now, if we had a tremendous amount of time, that little section is actually well worth thinking through in terms of a full biblical theology. Because God's name and glory is carried to the nations, Then the Gentiles who are the people of God come and are appointed priests. They're appointed Levites. The priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. Levi. Not even 10% of the Israelites could be priests. But here God's appointing Gentiles to be Levites and priests. 
Now that has to be taken into account when we try to sort out a little bit about the people of God and the relationship between Israel and the church, particularly when it's picked up in the New Testament. Here, God is making Gentiles Levites to be priests in his temple. As the new heavens and new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Everyone is going to bow before God. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. It is desperately important that we learn to wish that the Bible was written just as it is. Although probably, doubtlessly, a lot of us might not articulate this, but think we could write a better Bible than God. This isn't how I'd end the book. Large part of me wishes the book didn't end this way. But that's not sort of a commentary on the book. It's a commentary on me. They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Well, what do you do with that? Isaiah ends with the strongest possible polarization. You will either live in the new heaven and new earth in the glory of God and enjoy, or you will be amongst those who the worm does not die, the fire does not go out. Now, you read that language, and obviously at some point you want to say, oh, it would be really nice if, if the New Testament sort of tidied this up for us. But that's precisely the image that Jesus uses. Uh, Jesus talks about Gehenna, where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. He gets that image from Isaiah. You get the exact same imagery in the book of Revelation as well. And so what do you do with that? Well, there's nothing you can do with it. Except to recognize that the way God has structured reality is that there are two different eternal ends. And it all hinges on your relationship with Him. All of it. It's not your good works. It's not your religion. It's not all that you do to be good enough. It's have you trusted in the one who pays the penalty for sin? Have you put your trust in the suffering servant? Have you looked to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that prophecy? Have you looked to Jesus Christ to be the one who gives you eternal life precisely by paying the penalty for your sins? And if you have, it's glory. It's glory forever. But if you haven't, There's no other sin bearer in the world besides Jesus. 
There's no other substitute. There's only one. Now, He's the only one you need because He's sufficient, but there's only one. And the book teaches us that everyone is under the wrath of God, and God's wrath will be satisfied. You will either be satisfied through Christ on your behalf or through your own suffering. I didn't write the book, but that's the message. Two ways, two ends, all through Jesus Christ. Let me just read for you, though, how the whole Bible ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a guaranteed outcome for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. May God help us. May God help us to do that, to just trust in Jesus to have sin atoned for, and to receive the new heaven and new earth and eternal life together in joy and in the presence of God. May Christ grant it. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.